The Sober Highway Podcast is brought to you by our good friends and sponsors, Brainwashed Coffee Company. Coffee is very important to the recovery community, but you already knew that if you've been listening to our show. What's even more important is the fact that Brainwashed Coffee Company donates 50% of their profits to people in addiction recovery. They've been taking good care of Anika and I for a while now, and now they want to take care of you. They're launching an all-new subscription service, which will bring fresh coffee on a monthly, bi-weekly, or even a weekly basis straight to your front door. If you head over to brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use the code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout, you'll get $5 off your first coffee order. Plus, if you order three or more bags, you'll get free shipping. Again, head over to brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout and help support an amazing brand giving back to people in recovery. Hey, everybody. Today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021, and it is time for episode 46 of your favorite recovery talk show, The Sober Highway Podcast. We figured because it's the one-year anniversary of us launching the show, Anika and I thought it would be a good idea to republish our very first episode. Please keep in mind that we were using completely different equipment when we first started recording the show, so it will sound completely different from the episodes that you've been hearing recently. But we still think that the information in there is really important, and maybe someday we'll even re-record it. But let's get straight into it. Get ready, get set, and let's go. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Anika. And my name is Dan. And welcome to your favorite recovery talk show, The Sober Highway Podcast. We are two young social workers who have dedicated our lives and careers to affecting change in the addiction recovery community. We want to use this podcast as a platform to take the things that we have learned over the course of our careers and share it with our listeners. At the end of the day, we hope to inspire as many people as we can to make a change and live a sober lifestyle that works for them. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. So I think what would be a really good idea is to share with our listeners a little bit about uh, the two of us, you know, to get things started. So that way, um, you know, in the future, when we when we talk from experience, they'll have a good sense of like who we are. Um, They'll know a little bit about our background and they may feel that they can resonate a little bit more with what we have to say. Is that cool? Mm -hmm. Okay. so uh, why don't you start? So my name is Anika Merchants, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker here in New York. Um, I've been in the field for just under 10 years. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. It has been a very interesting journey, (laughs) to say the least. Um, But I can definitely say that I feel very fulfilled. I've done majority of my work in community mental health, hospitals, uh, substance abuse treatment, and child protective services. Okay, so you've done the whole, the whole thing, basically. Yeah, okay. Basically, and now I'm doing um, private practice where I focus most of my work with young adults and adults experiencing depression, anxiety, early recovery, and okay. some that are still struggling with uh, current substance abuse. Okay, so what would you say right now is like one of your, like what what would you say who's like your youngest client right now? My youngest client is 12. That's awesome. Uh, I used to actually work predominantly with kids, okay. but 
I have shifted over the years because I really found that I do have a calling working with people who are in recovery of some sort um, yeah. or trying to strive for recovery. One of the things that I've noticed throughout the years is even people who do not struggle with drugs and alcohol struggle in other areas of their life that they mm-hmm. might be addicted to right. shopping, gambling, relationships. Yeah. You know, all it's very that. interesting that you say that because a lot, a lot of times um, people, when they think of addiction, they just think of drugs or alcohol and there's not there's not that many services out there for people that struggle say with like an eating disorder or um maybe like an addiction to shopping or to working out or things like that so i think it's really cool that there are people that you know that want to work with individuals that have those types of addictions yeah i think it's definitely an underserved population that Mm -hmm. we see all the time Mm -hmm. in our field, but people don't really know where to go for help. And Mm -hmm. a lot of clinicians also don't know how to treat some of these things. It's, it's interesting because I think in principle, all of those addictions uh, follow the same like thought processes in the sense that they were, people resort to those behaviors to cope with some sort of anxiety or depression or trauma something in their lives that is affecting them. So it just really surprises me that there aren't a lot of clinicians out there treating that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the the leaders in the field of addiction is Dr. Gabor Mate. And I think I he's awesome. Yeah. I love him. Yeah. You know, he, he talks about his trauma work um, and how that has really influenced all types of addictions. And I think, again, a lot of times we're thinking about treating just the addiction rather than looking at what's behind it. And trauma isn't always what we think that it is. Right. Um, So I guess I'll share a little bit about myself. Um, Basically, my entire social work career, which is, I guess, if you count my internships, I would say six years, um, going on seven years, um, has pretty much all been in the addiction recovery field. Um, I started doing a lot of work with uh, with adults and even older adults. Um, and then when I graduated and I got my first job, I did pretty much all of my work with adolescents because I worked at a residential program for adolescents. Oh, residential's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is very, very hard. Um, and take into account that they were adolescents, it just makes things a little bit more uh, complicated. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then once I left that job, I... Um, I moved to an outpatient clinic, uh, and I did pretty much everything. I was working with adolescents, adults, older adults. I use the saying from pediatric to geriatric. I, I mean, like that one. <laughs> um, but I think that most, you know, most of my experience over the course of my career is predominantly with adolescents. But I have made some. Um, I have made some really good progress with some of my adult clients and seeing some of the things that um, that they've been able to accomplish over the course of my career is just really, it's just really fulfilling for me. So um, I want to be able to share some of that with anybody who cares to, you know, drop a listen on this podcast, because this is something that I've really been thinking about doing for a really, really long time. And I think your experience really shows kind of the continuum of, continuum of care, right? Mm-hmm. And how 
sometimes it starts at an outpatient level and clients need more services and it goes inpatient or sometimes it starts with inpatient or detox and then goes yeah. outpatient. I think one of the things that I love about my career so far is that I've gotten the chance to work at so many different levels of care that I've kind of gotten the chance to see what a person's recovery could look like from the beginning to, you know, where they're maybe in need of detox or like a, you know, like a crisis center of some sort, and then move on to, you know, an outpatient program for aftercare. And then they move to that, that long-term relapse prevention type where they're just, I don't want to say coasting, but like, they're just, they, they've gotten to the point where sobriety for them is just so easy to do. Again, I'm using quotation marks because <laughs> people won't be able to see this, but like they've gotten to a point where recovery is so easy that it's almost second nature to them and they don't have to think about, you know, the things that maybe someone in early recovery would because it's just part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that like transitions into the, the beginning of recovery, right, is about mm-hmm. the physical you know, abstinence of drugs and alcohol or the harm reduction, right? Yeah, and then absolutely. Over time, it really becomes more of this emotional sobriety where mm-hmm. you're not necessarily thinking about the drugs or alcohol all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the early recovery period, I would say usually like the first three to five, maybe even six months is, is usually the most difficult for people. And because I think that because they're, like you said, they're just so focused on the the not using part or the not drinking part. And for some, again, for someone who's in early recovery, they haven't developed those skills um, or their skills aren't as fine-tuned as someone in long-term recovery that they, it's ve- they're very easy to give up on themselves. Yeah, and and that's why we see such a high relapse rate, right? Exactly. Especially in early recovery. One of the one of the metrics that we uh, that we were measuring um, at our residential program was, um, you know, they they people always look at their program success rates, and for for that program that we were working at, that I was working at, the success rate they defined as someone who was able to maintain abstinence for ninety days after leaving treatment. So. I don't like to look at success rates of programs because I think that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you were to look at success rates, like, they're not really that high because... They're kind of abysmal. Yeah, it's really bad. And so I think that it's just important to know that if you can make it through at least the first 90 days of, you know, early recovery without drinking or without getting high, the chances of you maintaining long-term abstinence is exponentially higher than than not. Yeah. And I agree with you. When I worked in residential as well, that's what we saw too, mm-hmm. was how long are they sober when they leave here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important for clinicians to recognize that that's not the only measure of success either. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also about what skills did they learn? If they do relapse, how quickly do they get back into recovery? Right. What other, you know, support systems do they have? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's very, very important for those, those, those inpatient programs or even like those early recovery programs that they provide services to, to 
to their clients or patients, however you want to call it, um, to allow them to, you know, find jobs, find housing and things like that. Because a lot of the time, at least now in my new role, is a lot of times people are getting high, people are get are drinking because simply because they don't have a place to go at night. Mm-hmm. And if you had, if, if a person had a purpose, you know, a job to get up for in the morning, a plate, uh, a, a warm place to sleep at night, meals to eat and stuff like that. The incentive for them to stay sober long-term is exponentially higher. I mean, out here on Long Island, I would, I really hope I'm not going out on a limb here, but I feel like the homeless community is not as large as it is in the five boroughs, especially in Manhattan. Um, and like, at least in, in the setting that I work in now, there's a lot more of the homeless community coming in, looking for services. And some of these people are what we call, what we call in that setting, high utilizers, because they really don't have, they don't have a place to go. They don't have a warm place to sleep. They don't have, they're not able to have access to food. So they come to the hospital just looking for a meal and a place to sleep for a few hours before they go back out on the street and start drinking or getting high again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so, think we see that in other aspects too, right? So like, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people in the recovery community, if they've been incarcerated in any way, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, jail or prison was one of the only places where I knew that I wasn't necessarily going to get high. I mean, look, of course, can you get something there? Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) But a lot of people say that that was like their longest stint in sobriety was the fact that they were able to have a safe place to sleep. They knew they were getting three meals a day and they didn't have the same access. It wasn't quite as easy. Yeah. I think that, you know, we'll get, we'll get to this part like a little bit later on when we, when we discuss you know, um, addiction in the criminal justice system. But a lot of times people that are incarcerated, especially for long periods of time, I'm talking like years in state prison or federal prison, whatever it is, um, that culture is all they know. That prison mentality, that gang mentality, that when they get released, the only thing that's the only lifestyle they know and it's only a matter of time before they end up back in prison again so not only not only is it important that we we show as clinicians that we show our clients that there's more in life to gain just from not getting high and not drinking but from not living that with that gang mentality or that, that prison mentality, you know? And so just to kind of segue back into our introductions, I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, Dan, what made you feel so passionate about the addiction, you know, community and early recovery community? Well, to be honest, I was going to, I was going to share with, uh, share this before, but, um, initially at the very, very beginning stages of my, um, me deciding what I wanted to do as a career, I actually, I actually wanted to be a a high school history teacher. And, um, it wasn't until like my sophomore year of college that I got really tired of 
writing the same papers over and over and over again and just looking at different parts, you know, the same part of history through a different lens. And um, that was when I decided to pivot and I switched my major to psychology because um, I was minoring in that at the time. And when I went down to career services and I asked them, what could I possibly do as a career? Um, they said, well, you could go, you could go to medical school and become a psychiatrist. You can get your PhD and be a clinical psychologist, or you could be, a, you could do social work. And part of the reason why I settled on social work was because I knew that I was not cut out for medical school. Um, I know I, I watch all those medical shows on TV. I know what it's like to go through medical school and to do residencies and all that stuff. And I knew I wasn't cut out for that. Um, but when I chose that, I knew that I had a lot of work, um, a lot of working experience as a teenager working with um, children on the autism spectrum. So I wanted to be able to help people in that area. And then when I got to graduate school, um, there wasn't really a, a, a track for me to do that. And they explained to me that if you want the mental health aspect of social work, we have a drug and alcohol treatment um, track that you can go on. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And when I got to my first internship, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is what I want to do. 100%. And my first year internship was, was not was not that great. I didn't really learn that much, but it was enough for me to to tell myself this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. And no matter where I go, like what agency I work for, whether I end up doing private practice at some point or if I stay working with like as part of a team somewhere, I want to work in recovery. That's it. Yeah, and that's awesome. You know, I think a lot of us have that where we're not really sure what we wanted to do initially. And I know some people also have the opposite experience where they know right away what they want. Mm -hmm. um, but it's almost like social work is its own calling. Yeah. And <laughs> we hear the calling eventually. I mean, I come from a background, uh, you know, my dad worked for the, for the city as an EMT for 30 plus years. So he was a public servant. And my mom is a retired uh, special ed teacher. And so I just, I just feel like it was brought, like it was just instilled in me that uh, the best type of career would be to help someone who can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know, and I'm sure you would agree that social workers don't do this type of work for the money. Because if we were doing it for the money... We'd pick something else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so there's a little there's a little saying that, that uh, my classmates and I shared in grad school, which was social workers don't do it for the outcome. I'm sorry. We do it for the... We do it for the outcome, not the income. Yep. Um, so... You know, a lot of my friends are, are working six-figure jobs. Like, my best buddy works as an underwriter. He's making bank as an underwriter. My other best friend's working as a, as a conductor on the railroad, and he's making boatloads of cash. And, you know, um, I, don't need, I don't need to make – I don't need a six-figure salary to feel fulfilled. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I do think, you know, in terms of advocacy, we should advocate for ourselves a little more. Oh, 100%. (laughs) I totally agree about that. But, but yeah, I think most of us, again, we, we go into it because we want to help people. That's exactly Mm -hmm. why I went into it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my story is somewhat similar, Mm -hmm. um, also different and, I'm first generation American. My, both my parents are from different, very different cultures. Really? And okay. uh, my mom was born in Germany. Okay. And my dad's Indian. And, okay. uh, you know, I went to school thinking I was going to be a creative writer, a poet. <laughs> I went to school for, it was great. I, I loved it. And all of a sudden <laughs> I decided, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be pre-med. <laughs> Transfer schools. <laughs> I remember one time I went home for a for a college like for a break for like my freshman year and I record I I recorded this little video. I don't think I'll be able to find it anymore, but I recorded a video of me telling my parents that I wanted to become a doctor and they just started laughing hysterically because they were like there's no way you could do that. There's no way you could be a doctor. And I low-key thought I could be, like, the coolest doctor ever. Of course. But they 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 say that they know me better than than I know myself, so I kind of agreed with them. And I'm kind of happy that I didn't become a doctor. <laughs> Way too much responsibility. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I think, again, some people, that is their calling. I thought that it was at the time. I was like, I love anatomy and physiology. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> and then I got to organic chemistry, and I was like, mm-mm. Nope. nope. I am Next. not cut out for this. Yeah. Uh, this is a major time investment in my mm-hmm. life. Uh, and so I went the psychology route. Mm-hmm. I thought I was actually going to do some neurobiology research. Okay. And I decided that I didn't want to do that either. I wanted to actually work with people. Um, and so when I went to grad school, I started working with kids as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it and I liked it. But... As time went on, I realized that maybe there are other things as well. And that's what I really loved about social work is that you have that ability at any point to kind of learn about different populations, work with different populations, gain experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always thought I would never work in the, the recovery community. It's not really my thing. I don't like it. I ended up working in it and I loved it. <laughs> so, you know, I think never say never and and keep your mind open that's one of the things that i have learned that mm. you know sometimes life takes you where you least expect it and then brings you a lot of hope and joy i think uh one of the things that maybe we could talk about now um because like what you said really got me thinking about the the social stigma that comes along with with addiction and people in recovery because I think it's gotten better over the last few years um, because a lot of, you know, celebrities are coming forward and sharing about their stories um, about, you know, like their substance use and their recovery process. But I think still the majority of the, of the public kind of looks at addicts or people in recovery as as less than a person you know because when when you ask if you were to ask someone what does what does an addict look like 
and I don't even like using the word addict because it just it 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 looks like I'm talking down on someone. Um, but like if you ask a person what does what do you think an addict looks like, they'll describe someone most likely describe someone who's like dirty or smells bad or you know ha- like looks homeless and stuff like that. But you know, someone in recovery like there's no set image of what a person in recovery looks like. Um, one of the stories that I love to tell people, uh, is, uh, about this time where I was sitting around a family dinner, like having a family dinner with, with, um, some people I actually hadn't seen in a while. And my cousin had asked me what I do for a living. And I told him that I'm going to be like an addiction counselor. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to help people in recovery and help them abstain from drugs and alcohol. And he was like, why would you want to do that? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't get it. And he said, why would you want to work with those scum? Oh. <laughs> and I was like, my, I like my fist stopped like right here, like right in front of his face. Cause I'm like, what? Like, who, excuse my language, but like, who the fuck are you to, to say something like that about these people that you've never met before? You know, someone in recovery could very easily be, you know, a person who just hit a rough patch in their life. Maybe they, you know, injured themselves and got addicted to, to painkillers or they, you know, got divorced and, you know, they just started drinking to help them cope with that. or you know uh i'm trying i'm like lost their job or there's so many there's so many there's so many reasons that people could develop in an addiction to something that like how could you make such a like a broad sweeping very very hurtful statement and so not only did it did that make me angry at him because he was so insensitive? But it just refueled my desire to want to help these people because no, I feel like most of the time, no matter what these, what my uh, clients or patients say, there's nothing that they can do to change the public's uh, opinion on them. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this podcast will help them do that. Yeah, and I think that it's it's very true. There, the stigma has decreased, but it's still enormous. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always try to help people understand. And my last job in a residential facility, I was supervising drug and alcohol counselors, and I basically said to them, "Think about something that you're really embarrassed mm-hmm. about in your life that you are like, oh my gosh, thank God nobody knows about this." Mm-hmm. I hate this piece of my life. I, I'm so disappointed in myself, whatever it is. Now imagine everybody knows it mm-hmm. and they judge you for it in every aspect, no matter mm-hmm. where you go. Everybody is now labeling you as this, seeing you a certain way. And that's what it's like to struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay? I think that I also like to look at addiction as not necessarily someone's main problem but maybe like a symptom of an even greater problem. Because like, normally it is. Right. Like like I was saying before, 
a lot of my patients would say that they don't have like they get high or they drink because they don't have a place to go. They don't have a job. They don't have any of these things. So if we can if we can get them set up with a job, we can get them, you know, a place to stay. We can get them, you know, food on a regular basis. We can help them with, you know, the issues that they have with their family, um, with trauma they've experienced. Once they slowly start to get all of those things resolved, they're, the likelihood that they may get high or drink again is significantly lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they they start to see those things slowly get resolved, they'll see themselves making progress and they'll just develop that confidence in themselves to keep going. And that's why early recovery is so, so important. Well, and I think a lot of times, too, drugs and alcohol are like the temporary short-term coping skill mm-hmm. for really long-term problems mm-hmm. that are a little more difficult for us to really solve, right? Mm-hmm. So, like you said, relationship issues, loss, housing, jobs, so many different mm-hmm. reasons, right? And so, again, a lot of people temporarily initially find comfort in drugs alcohol whatever other addictions right Mm -hmm. and yeah it works initially until Mm -hmm. it doesn't work anymore and then it becomes an issue that is challenging and that people struggle with but again it's not the the true reason most of the time like that they're coming into treatment they're coming into treatment because they don't have a place to go or Mm -hmm. you know they're struggling with depression and they don't have any coping skills they don't know how to manage what's going on I think that it's very, very important that people know that when someone in recovery, you know, either decides to come out and say, I'm an addict or I'm in recovery or I have a problem with drugs or alcohol, that that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage to come out and say that. Um, so back to my point. I think it's really important that when when you meet someone who openly shares with you that they're in recovery, that you understand that it took a lot for them to feel uh, willing to share that. And the fact that they shared that with you means that they trust you and that you won't judge them for for their past or for what they're about to do or what they may do in the future. And you should really take the time to learn that person's story if you haven't already. Yeah. I think judgment is one of the things that keeps people silent, mm-hmm. is what kind of keeps people in that cycle of, I'm scared to say anything. Society makes me feel guilty, mm-hmm. shame. Mm-hmm. This, this is why that you hear a lot of people in recovery say, you know, go to meetings, um, 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, because I think that especially in early recovery, um, the, the peer, the peer based system that you have in AA or NA or, um, all the other 12 step anonymous groups can be really helpful. I think there's, no better person in recovery to help someone than another person in recovery because they know firsthand what it's like. Where I think us as social workers or therapists or clinicians, where we step in is we help them 
make connections between certain things in their lives that maybe they never thought to connect before. Um, we can help them, you know, maybe do a little bit of internal reflection as, you know, as our clinical jargons coming through here, um, help them think inwards and be like, oh, well, maybe this is why I act this way, or maybe this is why I act that way, or this is why I say things this way. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to have support on both fronts, right? Exactly. So to have the, the fellow, you know, um, people in a 12-step program, Celebrate Recovery, Recovery 2.0, whatever community you belong mm-hmm. to, right? Um, to have other people that have gone through the same experience because they're going to provide you with one perspective. Mm-hmm. Then you have the clinicians that are going to help you maybe uncover some of the things that don't initially seem like they're related right. to drugs or alcohol, but they yeah. really are. Um, and so really having a lot of different ways for you to explore what's going on and how to recover, because there's no perfect way to recover, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. I think that there's there's multiple approaches and what works for one person may not always work for somebody else. I and that. I know that some people totally disagree with that, mm-hmm. but um, that that is what I've seen throughout my career. Um and I think that, again, it's it's like different sources of support and reflection and feedback are always going to be helpful. And so to have that multifaceted approach. I think I agree with you 100%. And hopefully you'll agree with what I'm about to say. And I hope that our listeners understand that we're not necessarily telling you how to get sober. We're just sharing from our experience what we have found to be the most um, beneficial for our clients and patients is that what may work for some for one person may not work for the next. Um, we have noticed that you know people like the most successful people in recovery have that you know have like a therapist or a, cl- uh, a clinician that they speak to regularly as well as having that peer-based system like an AA or an NA or something like that. Some people don't like AA or NA because uh they're they're not religious or they they don't they're not very they're not into like spirituality and stuff like that. Um some people think it's bogus. Um some people think treatment is bogus like going to therapy is stupid. There's another there's a there's an entirely different like like if you just tell someone that you're going to therapy people look at you like like you're crazy and i think that going to therapy is an amazing thing but anyway your program you can set your program up the way that you you want but the reason why we're saying this stuff works is because it really does like if aa didn't work if aa was so bad that it never helped anyone. Nobody would go. Nobody would go, and there'd be <laughs> you wouldn't know what AA is anymore. And the same thing with with therapy. Like if therapy didn't work, there would be there would not be any people like starting careers in therapy now because they know it would be a dead end. And I think again, a lot of what happens is there's a lot of fear stigma that comes mm-hmm. up, which is why people don't want to try treatment and. What I always tell people, too, that are looking to get into recovery or trying to recover on their own is you don't have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. There, There is support in many different ways. And 
I know clients that have gotten sober just because they attend therapy, just because they attend an outpatient program, or because they attend a 12-step program or an, another non-12-step program. Like I said, Smart Recovery, Recovery 2.0, Celebrate Recovery, Refuge Recovery. I think there needs to be a lot more of those evidence-based like peer programs, like Smart Recovery, because for those people that don't like AA specifically because it's faith-based, you know, belief in a higher power, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be more of those. Um, I once had a client tell me at the residential program that, that he was a pastafarian. Okay. And he didn't want to go to an AA program because that type, that belief system that he subscribes to it just doesn't match with him. And when he first told me he was a Pastafarian, that's how, that's how you pronounce it. Um, I really, because it had, it was such a surprise to hear him say that. I really had to hold back a cut, like a chuckle because I didn't want to be judgmental of him. And Pastafarians, they, their deity is the flying spaghetti monster, right? You remember the story a while back about the guy who, who wanted to take his driver license picture with the, with the colander on his head? Yes, I do. Right. So he shared with me a little bit about what Pastafarians believe, and I thought it was really interesting. And so when he didn't really believe in the whole spiritual thing, um, he asked if while he goes on his weekend passes, if he goes to a smart recovery meeting instead of AA or NA. And immediately I said yes. And ever since that moment, if people don't want to go to AA or NA or any type of 12-step program because they think that being religious or being spiritual is bullshit, then try smart recovery. Because it's evidence-based. It's based on science. Things that clinicians have developed that work. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that you say that. Because actually when I was working in residential, I created, uh, well, started a smart recovery group there. Because they would only take them to 12-step meetings. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of pushback in mm -hmm. terms of, you need meeting credits for the week. And there were people that, did, you know, 12-step programs didn't resonate with them. And mm -hmm. so I said, hey, what would happen if, you know, we allowed them to go to smart recovery? Oh, well, we can't transport them. How about we have it here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'll run it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. <laughs> and, you know, it started off really small. They wouldn't even give them meeting credits for coming to Smart Recovery. But wow. I, I slowly got a following of women that would come and eventually they realized, wow, some of these women in recovery are coming even though they don't get a credit for this. What's going on? Mm -hmm. They ended up giving them the credit for, you know, again, residential treatment, they have to make a certain number of meetings a week and all that. But they did end up giving them meeting credit. And when I left there, one of my conditions kind of was, please continue this. Who can run this? Mm -hmm. um, because I really want women in this program to continue to have alternatives. Mm -hmm. The point that I think we're trying to make is that everyone's recovery program is different. And like I said before, what works for one person um, may not work for the next person. And we encourage you to, once you have found a program 
that works for you, whether it be, you know, things like 12 step, smart recovery, seeing a therapist, um, you know, doing work in the community, volunteering, things like that. Share those stories with us. Um, share them with people that you think, you know, that are in your community that could benefit from hearing how you achieve sobriety um, or how you've, you know, succeeded in the recovery process. Because when you share stories of success with people, they start to think, well, if that person can do it, so can I. And that person came from the same background that I did. So if he can do it, and he he told me exactly how he did it, maybe it's possible for me. And then you start to, then you start to network with people and you start to hear about different, like people's different programs and how they've gotten sober. And you develop your own, you develop your own recovery program. And then when you get to the point where you can share your recovery program with someone who's just starting out per se, it just compounds on itself. Like the recovery network just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And one thing I would add to that is for anybody that is hesitant, just try it. Mm -hmm. Try one thing. If you don't like it, try something else. Just keep trying something because eventually you will find something that works, right? You'll, you'll, you, whether it maybe you go to a meeting and you hear like this one person say this one thing that just resonates with you or say you go to a program and you meet like a therapist that just completely changes your outlook on life. Um, you never know. You never know what might work for you unless you start trying things. And you'll find that in, in therapy program, like if you go to a therapist or if you go to a residential program, or if you go to, if you go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, people leave their judgments at the door when they walk in. It's one of the most nurturing environments that you could ever go to. Um, and I'll share another story because I love to share stories. You'll, our listeners will get to know that and come to appreciate it over time. Um, when I was in graduate school, one of the trainings, uh, one of the courses that we took, um, um, asked us, our professor asked us to go to a, like a peer meeting, like an AA or an NA for a smart recovery and just sit and observe. Um, if we wanted to participate, then we could, but she said for the most part, just sit and observe. And afterwards come back, write a report, share it with the class. So, um, I went to a, uh, I went to an NA meeting in Hicksville on like a Friday or a Saturday night. It was a newcomer's meeting, an open meeting. Um, and there must have been at least 100 people in this meeting. Older adults, younger adults, people from all different backgrounds. Um, and so I sat in the back because I didn't want to draw a lot of attention to myself. And everybody, everybody went around the room saying, hi, I'm Joe. I'm an addict. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm an addict. And I didn't want to share my name 
Also, I think that I felt more inclined to do this because it's an anonymous group. I just said, um, hi, I'm Mark with a C. I don't know why I said with a C, but I didn't say I'm an addict. I didn't say I'm in recovery. I didn't say anything like that. The introductions kept going. I sat for the whole meeting and it was, you know, someone was celebrating 10 years. Someone was celebrating 20 years. Um, One person said that like they used earlier today and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to get soap. They decided they wanted to get sober and it was just a really nurturing experience. And the people who, you know, were leading the meeting, they saw me, they picked me out of a crowd of like a hundred and something people. And they waited for me by my car. And while I was, I walked out to my car, I thought like, what the hell's going on here? And they said, they said, Hey, Mark with a C, um, we noticed that during your introductions that you didn't say you're in recovery or you're an addict or you're an alcoholic. So we just wanted to, we just wanted to see if you were okay and to let you know that we're here for you if you need help. And so I shared with them that, you know, I, why I was there to begin with and they weren't angry. They weren't upset. They didn't feel betrayed. They thought that it was really cool that someone who wants to dedicate their career to helping people in recovery, like they thought it was cool to see that we wanted to see what the AA meeting was like. And they, they all gave me their numbers and they were like, if you want to, if you want to know anything more, or if you want to, like, if you ever want to talk to someone, like give us a call, we will be more than willing to talk to you. I lost that list. I, I wish I didn't lose it. Um, but like, it just goes to show you that that type of community will be nurturing no matter who you are. And I think that that's really important to know. And I know sometimes what I hear from people too is they do not have that experience sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just remember that there are always other meetings you can try. Sometimes, you know, maybe an off day or maybe people mm-hmm. are going through certain things, right? And maybe they're not as, as open and, and nurturing or, you know, something else is going on. And so I think it's just important to continue to keep an open mind because again, mm-hmm. I think your experience is one that majority of people do have. But occasionally there are off days or groups that may not always have that same feel. Mm-hmm. So I would always say, just give it another shot because mm-hmm. I know some of our listeners might say, hey, you know what? I That was not my experience. I had mm-hmm. an awful experience. Mm-hmm. And so I just want people to kind of feel like, you know, there sometimes are things that happen. That's okay. Um, you might, you know, I can't tell you how many times in my outpatient uh clinic that I was working at where I would have to I would have to work really hard with someone to get to get them to a point where they were kind of open to going to group therapy and once they came in for their first group someone in that group I guess either had like an outburst or like somebody just I don't I don't even know how to describe it but like Something so far out of the norm would happen, and then that person would be like, see, see, I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come to group therapy. (laughs) And I'm like, I promise you, that's not how it is. Like, that, and and I said, like, that could have very easily been you, having that that outburst. Mm -hmm. And so, it's important, like you were saying, if it doesn't work the first time, keep trying 
try to find something that works for you. You know, if 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 you didn't like the way one meeting goes, either give that another that meeting a try or find find another meeting in your area. If say you go to a therapist and you don't feel like you're gelling with that person, try seeing another therapist. Don't just give up on therapy altogether because every therapist has their own style. I find that as a younger therapist, I feel like I can resonate more with with younger adults. Um especially the guys, you know, they're throwing they're throwing all these uh, like the new like slang that people are coming up with nowadays. It, I find it amazing that I'm able to keep up with it and because they know that I'm understanding what they're saying and they don't have to explain themselves, like they're more willing to like to open up to me where if say they were working with someone maybe that was like old enough to be my mom where they're not really in touch with the younger the younger crowd anymore they don't feel like ah this this woman doesn't get me this guy doesn't understand me you know um yeah and i think it's very true i always tell clients when i first meet with them i'm like i may not be the right therapist for you that's mm-hmm. okay let mm-hmm. me help you find somebody that is if you feel like it's not the best fit right mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of what we can do and other clinicians can do as well is just kind of keep that out there and put that out to clients. And for, you know, our listeners or clients who are like, mm, maybe they're seeing a therapist and they don't necessarily think they have the best relationship or they can't be 100% honest or people who are just thinking about therapy and aren't sure. And they're like, okay, well, what if I don't like them? Try mm. somebody else. One of the things that I think is very, very important, and I'm sure we're going to say this many, many times over the course of this podcast and throughout all of our episodes, is um, it's very important that you share with your therapist or even with your peers at your AA group what you're hoping to get out of going to AA or what you're hoping to get out of going to therapy because that way your peers and your therapist can help you even more. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say, like, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of seeing you. Like, ther- like this, like our sessions, they're not helping me. And they'll, and I'll ask them, well, what are you trying to get out of coming to therapy? And they'll say, well, I want, I want to do this. I want to be able to do that. I'm like, I'm like, you never, you never shared that with me before. So now that I know that that's what you're trying to work on, let, let's do that. And so if you feel like you're not gelling with your therapist well, or if you feel like they're not understanding you, or if you feel like you're not getting what you need to out of those peer groups, say something. Because if you don't say anything, you can't possibly expect it to get better. And that will only fuel your, your thoughts of this shit doesn't work. So, and even after, if you, if you've made those concerns known to your therapist or to your peers and they agree, okay, well, let's, let's make a shift. And then you still are not noticing anything. Then maybe it's time to move on. So like you were saying, give your therapist a chance, give your peer groups a chance. Um, and if you're still not noticing anything, then it's time to make a change. Find another recovery another piece of your recovery program that you can add yeah and i think the other aspect to that too is in recovery or even when you're before you decide to completely commit to recovery to be 
wildly unapologetic in your honesty with yourself. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I think I think that addiction is just as selfish as recovery is. Mm-hmm. Because you always have to put you have to put yourself first. Because if like if you ask if you ask people that are in long-term recovery like what say like what their top 5 priorities are in life, they'll say their recovery is first, then their family, then their career and you know um their financial well-being and stuff like that. And I'll ask them, "Why do you always put your recovery first?" And they say, "Well, if I'm using, I'm not a good father, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good employee. I'm not I'm not like financially stable and all that." So it's it's very important that you that you that you keep your pri- your focus primarily on your recovery or how like when you go through your life and you make those when you make these major life decisions you ask them, you ask yourself how is this going to impact my recovery yeah and i think that in in terms of that just knowing that all of the great things that you could have or that you do have when you're in recovery is possible only because of recovery mm-hmm. right so i think that that's something to keep in mind and in the beginning sometimes that's really rough because you may not have anything or it seems like you may not have anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people in very early recovery that have a day sober, a week sober, and they're like, I have no job. I have no place to live. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> these great things that are going to happen to me. It's very open-ended recovery, right? There's no end. It's not like you need to have X amount of sober time or clean time to get a job or X amount of sober time to win your wife's trust back or your girlfriend's trust back or your, your family, your children's trust back. Like you just have to, you just have to keep doing it for you and not for anybody else. And then you'll start to see all those positive things start to return to your life. And that's where being selfish and recovery. Comes exactly. Into play. You have to put, <laughs> you have to put yourself first because it's like, it's like when you do it, when you do it for like when you do it for your wife like if 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 you say like if you come to therapy and you say my wife's going to leave me if if i keep drinking and say you go a year without drinking and you're like and like you come into your therapist and you say my wife's still leaving me like i was i'm sober for a year and she still doesn't you know want to be married to me anymore then you're just going to start drinking again but if you're doing it for yourself and not for your wife, you know, the you're not going to care whether or not your your wife leaves you because you know that no matter what, you're not going to be happy unless you stop drinking. Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, people's experiences, they stop drinking maybe for their wife or their kids, um, but eventually it shifts into them kind of stopping drinking or using Mm -hmm. for themselves and so Mm -hmm. i've seen that happen too where people can you know it starts off maybe for other people but then it shifts Mm -hmm. um throughout the the time and they recognize hey wait i actually really want this this is really for me (laughs) right like if if that's what you have to say to get yourself in the door do it do it like if if you're telling me that like 
my wife's going to leave me if I don't stop drinking or my probation officer, my parole officer is going to lock me up if I, if I don't stop getting high or, you know, their CPS is going to take my kids away if I, if I keep, if I keep using, that's fine. Well, we can work with that. And because two things, one, the fact that you're in a program or that you're going to AA is going to work out in your favor. And two, hopefully your mind will change. Like, yeah, like I'm doing this so that I can stay with my wife, but like, I just want to make sure that I'm good, you know, and no matter what, whether they take my kids away, whether I go to jail, whether I get divorced, I'm going to be okay mentally. And that's a big piece of acceptance, mm-hmm. right? And I think Absolutely. that that's a lot of recovery programs are really big and and help you to te- they help you to teach yourself acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, and therapy can do the same thing, and I think that that's really important. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear some more of our content, go ahead and check out our previous episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please be sure to check us out on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Make sure to get involved with our TikTok campaign to get AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys on the show. If you'd like to share any information with Anika and I, or if you want to be a guest on our show, feel free to DM us on social media, or just send us an email to thesoberhighway at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in. Anika and I will catch you next week. Bye!